all of the mythology and storytelling around you is celebrating people who are selfless and who set themselves on fire to keep other people warm. I just don't see that it's sustainable. What our industry needs is people who are going to be around for a decade or more. A lot of the projects that people are working on, they need 10, 20 years of your time. And if you burn yourself out within those first few years, we miss out, the industry misses out on what you can do over a much longer time span. Welcome to Ecosystems for Change, where we co-author the playbook on transforming communities by amplifying the impact of changemakers around us. Whether you are an entrepreneur or otherwise changemaker yourself, a citizen who loves their community with a passion and wants to see it thrive, whether you are a mentor, investor, support organization, advisor, philanthropic funder, economic developer, or policymaker. Learn the practical tools and proven tactics of ecosystem builders from all around the world to better support the dreamers, doers, tinkerers, and makers in your community by taking a systems approach to social change. I'm your host, Annika Horn. Today, we're headed to Melbourne, Australia to talk to my good friend Isaac Jeffries. He was kind enough to sit down with me after a late-night game of Aussie rules to talk to me about his experience working in the Australian and South Pacific social enterprise space. We chatted about setting and upholding boundaries to ensure we don't disappoint ourselves or the people around us who matter. We also talked about having the guts to share your work, managing your energy, and staying true to your ethical compass. Let's head down under. Isaac, I'm so excited to talk to you because we've had some of the best conversations over the years and we get to do this, what, like maybe once every year, twice a year? Not very often. So thank you for coming on the show. I'm very excited. We get to geek out on creativity and social media and putting your creativity out into the world through all the different channels. This is going to be great. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, I ask this every guest, and yours is really special because you're all the way in Melbourne, Australia. If I were to come to your ecosystem for the first time, where would you take me? All right. So if you're in Melbourne, you have to go to a you have to go to a good cafe. It's it's the mandatory starting point of every day. I have I have four rules for what makes something a good cafe. First thing is you need to walk in and you need to recognize the brand of coffee machine. If, if, you, if they're serious about coffee, they will have a coffee machine that costs more than your car. Second thing is you look around the cafe, you're going to look for who's the person behind, behind the machine. And there are no rules, but they should look like someone who's made you a, a really impressive coffee in the past. And it might be it might be an excited Italian man with a big bristly mustache. It could be a very... Uh, immaculately groomed, you know, super like, ultra cool, all black wearing Japanese barista who looks like it is a science experiment. It could be the friendliest person in town who knows everyone's order and their name and has an inside joke with everyone. Coffee is a, um, it's a, it's a morning ritual that it doesn't look like it's taken too seriously, but it's, it's a big deal. The other two ways you can spot a good cafe in Melbourne is if they're selling their own coffee beans. They are serious about what they do. And the last yep. one is you look at the sugar that's on the table. If they have sugar in little paper sticks, run, run out the door. That, that's going to be garbage. If they have a little bowl of raw sugar, you're going to have a very average experience. If they have sugar that looks like sand, 
The cafe is run by a coffee fanatic who resents anyone putting sugar in their coffee. That person's going to make the best coffee on the strip. <laughs> so you can do a quick scan. Machine, barista, beans, sugar. You can do that scan within about six seconds and you are pretty much guaranteed that you're going to get a great coffee. That's amazing. I had no idea there was such a science behind it. I will say coffee in Australia is something else. I mean, coffee in Italy, amazing. But yes, in Australia, it really is a, a wildly different experience, which is one of the many things I love about the lifestyle over there. Okay, so we're going to start off in your favorite. Give a shout out to one of your favorite coffee shops. Oh, my, <laughs> my favorite is one called Zubibi in Hawthorne East, which is a that's a very obscure one. Um, it's It's just a lovely... It's just a really lovely space. And so what I tend to do is I will take my worst problem or hardest task or thing I'm dreading that day. I will take it with me. I will set up shop with my laptop. I'll stay there for half an hour. I will get my least favorite thing off my to-do list. And then I feel much lighter and more caffeinated for the rest of the day. I love it. All right. So we'll start there. What else does your ecosystem entail that we could cover in a day to get a good taste for what it's all about? Uh, I take you to the university that I work at part-time. Uh, I'm at Deakin University in, in Melbourne. I run a program called Startup Ideation. So you'd be, you'd be walking into a very modern-looking conference room with 20 um, excited and nervous-looking students. They're probably between 22 and 50 years old, and they have all been working on a startup idea for the last eight weeks. You're going to see some nervous looks with some people who have just done customer interviews and they found that no one cares about their product idea. And you're going to see some really <laughs> excited people who just got a, uh, a pre-order for $54,000 for something they haven't built yet. And they are incredibly excited because that's the most money they've ever heard of <laughs> and petrified and they feel like an imposter. And you're going to get to talk to both of those people and you're going to try and reassure them both as best as you can. And you're going to keep, you're going to try and keep people moving. You're going to try and understand where they're at and what's holding them back. And you're yeah. going to try and help them to process the good and the bad and not get bogged down by insecurity or overly obsessing on finer details or feeling like they're a fraud. And then later on, we would probably go across town, probably to a different cafe, and we'd work with another social entrepreneur, maybe maybe a small team, and help mm -hmm. them with what whatever is getting them stuck at that particular moment. So if it was a day like I had today, it's working with people to map out what have we built, where is it getting stuck, where are we going, what are the real questions that we have to grapple with, and what's actually what's actually holding us back. So these conversations are really nice. Um, I probably try and run towards the discomfort. I, I want to get to what's what's genuinely keeping you from from being happier with this business sometimes it's it's financial but more often than not it's um mindset and storytelling it's mm -hmm. people have expectations of what the startup journey is going to look like what they what they are living doesn't match that experience and they feel like therefore something must be wrong with them as a person and we tend to try and disassociate the experience that their business is going through, their social enterprise is going through as separate from what they are going through. So I often have conversations around, you are not your business. <laughs> if your business experience is a failure, you are not a failure. Oh. And 
things are never as good as people think and they're never as bad as people think. So um, we try and, and give them a really balanced perspective on what they're building, where it's going, what can we do, how do we do the hard part first and what, how do we run clever tests to sort of demythologize and uh, destigmatize the work that we're doing. We have had two coffees. We met your students. We met social entrepreneurs. What does that end of the day look like? Uh, the end of my day uh, would end with a tram ride through Melbourne and then pushing a pram with one-year-old twins up the road. Um, <laughs> I, I had, well, my, technically my partner had twins um, during lockdown in 2020, so they're about to turn two years old. And so I found the way to make a walk more palatable for them is I've got I've got a big boombox that I put underneath their pram and we blast the Wiggles music on Spotify and that keeps them very happy as we walk through the streets <laughs> near my house for an hour or so and that's sort of my time to switch my brain off and, and talk to them a little bit um, and, and get some sort of exercise but also to sort of like process everything that's happened and, you know, let the back of my brain start to go, that was an odd moment that happened here or I wonder who I should connect this person to there. I find those those moments are really, really helpful. And Melbourne's a beautiful city and it's lovely to walk around at, at five or six at night. Fantastic. So you just gave me a really good cue because this whole time I've been thinking about how am I going to introduce Isaac? Because you don't fit in a box. Um, if I said <laughs> you work with social entrepreneurs on like strategy, that is true, but it doesn't do it justice. I feel like you bring such a wealth of experience and critical thinking. You're on the show today to talk about sort of design and creativity, which I think is also an, an aspect of what you do, but it doesn't do it justice. But one thing I think you do really, really well is you just have a different way of thinking than most people. Like you process in a different way. And I, I have always appreciated that about you. So for everybody, nobody probably knows this, but I met you in 2016. April, April 2016. Yeah. You remember April 2016 yeah. because I was in Australia talking to different support organizations for social entrepreneurs for an earlier version of Social Venturers. And I was like, oh, the Difference Incubator, that sounds really cool, TDI. And I reached out and you were so gracious and generous to say, sure, random German tourist, I would be happy to talk to you about our program. And I came into your office, which was beautiful. And you talked to me about the work you guys are doing, the history of the program, the entrepreneurs you're working with. And I was so struck with how you design programs and how you think about that entrepreneurial journey and shepherding social entrepreneurs through that process with a mix of tough love, critical thinking, but also the support. And, and what you said was you are not your business. I think that's super, super helpful. So all that is a really long way of saying I've been a huge fan of, of how you think, if that's even a thing, I don't know. And then I was very excited when you finally came on Instagram and started writing newsletters so I can feel like I'm picking a little <laughs> bit of a brain every time something lands in my inbox, which I appreciate because I do think you have an incredible eye for design. One of our early conversations was around 
when you were working with uh, social entrepreneurs in Papua New Guinea, I think, was how do you create a support program for remote entrepreneurs who have very little access to a lot of the fancy tech tools and what we have, and not just create great content, but make it the type of content that they want to consume, that they want to engage with, that is not just strong content, but also presented in a way that is not just beautiful, but really coherent and makes sense. So anyway, this is a super long preamble to saying, have you always been this creative? And how do you channel that? Or was there a time when you weren't creative? Can you tell us more about that? I found that I have a an odd business brain in that I find business really, really interesting. And I find people who run businesses really, really interesting. And whenever I'm caught up in a conversation with someone who's doing interesting things and has a really interesting story, I naturally want to ask them questions and get their yeah. perspective. And things, some things strike me as odd or interesting or inspiring or funny or concerning. And I raise that with them. And I worked out pretty quickly that not all business falls into this category. And in particular, I like people who are doing something that's bigger than themselves. And mm -hmm. so essentially I started just volunteering on social impact projects and meeting up with people who were starting social enterprises and I would volunteer and I would offer to help wherever I could and I would tell them what I thought was the truth and I would I would speak from a place of like I want to help I don't understand this aspect how come you've done it like this rather than this and it's genuine curiosity I'm not trying to force my view onto people and that sort of just has gone from one thing to the next to the next so I was I was working as a volunteer on a uh, designing an impact business in in Papua New Guinea back in 2012 that they had this dilemma about you know starting their own brand of um, chocolate bar that was made from cocoa beans that were going to be grown in this like fair trade project up in up in PNG and I remember saying to them why are you bothering trying to start your own label that sounds really difficult surely all the social impact comes from the fact that you've bought the beans why not just wholesale this and have this chocolate end up on you know Maltesers or Mars bars and they said you're the second person to ask us that question and they introduced me to the first guy who asked that question and that was um, who ended up being the founder of the Difference Incubator which is where I uh, joined as their first employee and it's where I still work today so um, me asking dumb and naive questions uh, has sort of taken me all around the world to all sorts of projects um, I learned that I don't have to be everyone's cup of tea the aim is to be some people's favorite cup of tea and the aim is to be useful without being, you know, loud or overbearing mm -hmm. um, and, and work out where am I useful? How do I show up? How do I help? And then when I'm not useful, I'm going to go on and do the next thing. And that's been a really lovely almost 10 years now. I know you've been with other organizations as well, but the thread has been the difference incubator in some capacity. You're now teaching at Deakin University. You have two lovely, cheerful twin boys, and you've been doing this for at least 10 years in the impact space. What was a moment in which you realized you were doing too much, running risk of burning that candle on both ends? Take us back to that time. What did that look like? If, uh, if you had such an experience. It's not something that I really... It's not something that I have content for, like I do with some other topics, but it's a topic that comes up all the time for myself, for so many of my friends and for so many of the people that I work with. I, I think it's especially an issue in anyone doing 
any sort of social impact work because you feel like there is a responsibility to do things mm-hmm. that are greater than just you. And, and that can be a great source of fuel and it can also be a real source of obligation. And the yeah. way I see most people burn the can, like burn themselves out is disappointment that they are letting down people they love or letting down a cause that they love rather than it being that they've got too many things on their list each day. My first moment of this happening was um, it was uh, probably the middle of 2013. I'd been working at the Difference Incubator for about five months. I was the youngest person there by quite some margin. I was also doing a lot of the day-to-day work, trying to get our first investment deals up and running, Mm -hmm. trying to run some of our first accelerator programs, and I was woefully underprepared for the job. And I really, really, really didn't want to disappoint the founders. I really didn't want to, um, I trusted them and I trusted their expectations of me. And so I did whatever I could to try and live up to those expectations. Mm -hmm. And I did that for a few months. Now that I think about it, it doesn't sound like that long, but those few months felt like a very, very long time. Oh, I bet. And I remember one day I was in far North Queensland. We were doing, um, we were trying to set up an investment deal for a uh, a tourism business that was taking passengers out to, you know, some really lovely parts of the Great Barrier Reef up in far north Queensland. And I remember lying on, on the boat one day and feeling really overwhelmed. And I felt something in my brain shift or click. And I can't describe what it was, but it felt like a bolt slide from one part of my brain to the other. I I know this sounds like pseudoscience and I don't, I'm not suggesting anything. I felt something physically move and I felt like I went into robot mode. I felt like I I understood what was on my list. I I, I felt like a lot of emotion drained from, from my, my mind and my work. And I just robotically just got things done. And I became pretty ruthless with like getting everything off my plate, fulfilling all my responsibilities And I realized after a few months that all the joy had gone, all the fear had gone, but all the joy had gone too. And I got married a few months later. And one of my big regrets is I didn't really enjoy my wedding. I was just so in such a like, get things done, get this obligation off my plate sort of way. I remember I viewed my wedding day as like, right, I've got to get to the church by this time. I've got to get to this by this time. I've got to do this speech. I've got to do these photos. I've got to see these people. And I was just so, everything was so monotonous and flat and I became miserable it was like that was probably what led to my version of that that burnout was I was just so underwhelmed and disappointed by how I was letting people around me down that I just felt kind of numb to the whole thing I don't think I burnt the candle at both ends I feel like the flame went out for me burnout was not overwhelm burnout was the dissatisfaction I had with myself and my work when it disappointed people around me. One of the really interesting things I had is is when I, I, I stepped away from the Difference Incubator for a few years because I felt just absolutely flat and exhausted and like I had no battery left for the work that they wanted me to do. The next day I started my new job at Business for Development, I went, <laughs> I went on a 4 a.m. flight over to Port Moresby uh, we started that night doing agricultural surveys. I was on a farm. I was digging up soil samples. We were doing pH analysis and checking the clay content of dirt for this agribusiness we were building. And I remember thinking, 
I have just had a 16-hour day. I am fascinated. I am loving this. It wasn't my battery. The problem wasn't the volume of work. The problem was I went from something that was draining me to something that refueled me. And it was this sort of light bulb moment where I went, oh, okay. The problem isn't that I'm a bad worker. The problem isn't that I'm lazy. The problem is I'm in an environment where these tasks make me feel really flat and drained. And what I have now is more work that's actually refueling me and re-energizing me. But it wasn't an overload of work. It's the wrong work. And yet you did go back to the difference incubator at some point. Had something changed or had you changed? Had the work changed? Had the volume changed? Yeah, 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 yeah. And as a side note, I felt that thing in my brain click back about a year later, about yeah. a year after it happened. And I, I, I can remember where I was when I felt it. It felt like I felt something physically change and I am determined to never let that happen again because... I actually love the work that I get to do. It's when there's the wrong expectation put on me either by myself or by the people I'm working with. That's the thing that kills the joy in the work. And that's what totally, it, it just totally shuts off the pipeline of things that I can do. And I was just so determined to never let that happen again. Once I had that moment, what I discovered is that a lot of the work itself that I was doing at TDI around running, running workshops being in accelerator programs, the actual time with the entrepreneur, that bit gave me energy. The, the more time I spent doing it, the more energy I got back, the more good questions, the more like tough conversations, all of those, they actually, they, they can be physically long days, but they actually spark an interest rather than drain an interest. And so there was, there was demand for me to, you know, there was room for me to come back and do that a few days a month. And I said, of course, I love this part of the work. Um, and then it was a few years later, I did, I stepped back more and more and I'm able to do my role there now is a lot of work that recharges me rather than drains me. I love that distinction of yes, social impact. We're all incredibly passionate about either being a social entrepreneur or supporting a social entrepreneur in a certain shape or form. And yet there are parts of the work, I'm, I'm very similar to you, where working with people really gets me energized and fires me up, whereas other parts of the work obviously drain you. So it's a tall order to only do the work that gives you energy and find a way to not do the work or not spend more time than necessary on the work that does not give you energy, that depletes you, that kind of drains you. What does that look like today? Like that was 2013 and the following months and years. What's life like now? I have a much better setup than I did then. And I think, I think part of it is having done this work for longer, you have more options and more invitations and that lets you assemble a portfolio of projects that together can be the right amount of challenging and inspiring and joyful and tough at the same time. I wouldn't ever suggest to people to just do the indulgent parts of the work. I don't think that's helpful. I think it is really good to stretch yourself and do things that aren't comfortable. For me, it was the difference between finding uncomfortable versus soul draining. So I like things that are difficult, but I like difficult things that make me want to come back the next day. And if yeah. something makes me not want to come back the next day, I do whatever I can to try and politely step back from that kind of work. As a side note, um, I, I feel like I have 
been the recipient of a lot of good fortune in terms of how I found the work that I've been involved in. I say I work in a university. The reason I've got that is because um, my friend who's at the university contacted me three years ago and she said, hey, Isaac, what are you doing for the next 12 Tuesdays? I said, I don't know. What would you like? And she said, my facilitator for this program has just pulled out with eight days notice. I need someone who can do the content. I know you already teach this kind of thing in your workshops. Would you be able to step in for a semester? And that's how I got my job at a university. So I didn't apply for it. I didn't, um, I didn't go through any of the, probably the correct channels. I'm not sure that this is a good case study in some regards, but, um, that then turned into two semesters, which turned into six. And then I've got number seven coming up later this year. So I've been able to say, yeah, that was a difficult thing to say yes to, but the work has made the rest of my work more joyful and more interesting. And working with people at the absolute grassroots of entrepreneurship, which is someone who didn't have a business idea a week ago, but has something that's really close to their heart they want to work on, I think it makes you sharper across the board. I think it forces you to get really clear on how to do the hard parts of business and how to confront the the really difficult questions around what is it I want to build? What happens if no one likes my idea? Um, what happens if people say, what happens if someone else has already built it? What happens if my prototype doesn't work? I think that makes you better at the, the heavier work later on. Hello. I wanted to pop in here real quick to remind you that this podcast is an ecosystem. And the best part, you can become part of it. You can listen, share it with the people in your life who need to hear what we're talking about. And you can engage in the conversation. What are you taking away from today's episode? What resonates? What do I need to know as we move through this season together? I would love to hear from you. Head over to speakpipe.com slash burn both ends and share what's on your mind. And with any luck, we'll hear from you in the final episode of this season. And now back to the show. One thing I've always wanted to ask you, when I was self-employed and, and did different projects with different clients, I found that incredibly exhausting because each client or partner treated you like you were that full-time person, yet you had dedicated maybe 10 hours a week or two days a week, whatever, to that project. And then switching your brain back and forth across different partners or clients or whatever you want to call them. I found that really exhausting. And I often found like I was spinning my wheels and not really moving anything forward in a meaningful way. Was that just me? How do you handle sort of splitting your brain into different categories and compartmentalizing that work? It's funny, it's funny you ask this because this, this is something that I'm not very good at. Myself and a colleague will be in a really remote part of the South Pacific. We'll be running training and workshops and doing site visits from 8 a.m. to, you know, 7 p.m. And these are huge days, but we arrive back at our accommodation and we're, we're pretty physically fatigued, but it's been, it's been a lot of big conversations, a lot of big ideas, um, some some really inspiring parts some really hard parts and then i will go back to my room when my wi-fi kicks in and i will have five emails from my other projects about five different topics and each of them will take me two minutes of brain power to respond to and it melts my head i cannot yep. do it i just i find 
the 10 minute task of switching between five, two minute conversations of like, what's the next thing that has to happen here? I find that 10 minutes harder than if we did two more hours of teaching and yes. listening and coaching and questions. I can't, I can't tell you why, but I don't know if it's just me, but um, it doesn't sound like it. Um, no. I find the task switching really, really difficult. That said, one of the underrated skills in this industry is the ability to monitor and manage your own battery in the same way that you keep track of your phone's battery throughout the day and when it gets low it makes you nervous and you are constantly finding ways of of trying to keep your phone well charged Um, the skill of being able to work out which things are draining my battery disproportionately quickly that's been very important to me with the balance of what i can say yes to or what i can say no to and I feel like when I'm in a room where I feel like I know what I'm talking about, that drains my battery four times slower than mm-hmm. when I feel like I'm out of my depth, I don't know what to say, I'm the wrong person to be in this room. That drains my battery really, really quickly. And so one of the things that I am still learning how to get good at is how to find the right um, the right balance between those two things. If I'm good, if I'm only in rooms where I'm good at something, it's going to stunt my learning. It's going to get boring. If I'm constantly in a situation where I feel out of my depth, it drains me. It makes me not want to go back the following day. And that's what, that's what leads to that burnout for me. That balance is really tough, but it's, it's something I've had to try and get better at each year. When it gets really tough and you, I don't know, it's Thursday afternoon and you're already depleted and yet you have commitments for another day and a half of doing work and showing up. What is your first line of defense? What? How do you pull that emergency break? What does that look like if you know your battery is already empty and yet you are committed and your decision is what? Either I cancel or I push through and make myself really miserable. How do you handle those situations? Asking for a friend, aka myself. <laughs> so this this comes up a lot for me recently. Um, one of the really interesting topics in, I guess, like personal management is the topic of boundaries. And I feel like everyone, everyone wants you to have a boundary until that boundary is applied to them. Yeah. And so I feel like to answer your like first line of defense question, I find what's helpful is like coffee, long walks, downtime, um, reading business books I find very helpful and talking to the people around me. Uh, everyone around me feels like they're smarter than me in a lot of areas. And so I usually have conversations with those sorts of people to sort of <laughs> sense check what's going on for me. And sometimes the answer yeah. is like, yeah, that sucks, man. And there's other times where like my mum my has the best ethical radar of anyone I know my dad has one of the best business brains and leadership brains of anyone I know and so telling them what I'm (laughs) grappling with that day and working out where I get nervous in talking to them is often a Mm -hmm. really big clue of whether or not I feel like I'm in the right with my position and my attitude versus when I'm in the wrong more often than not I'm in the wrong and I can't think of a time where that that you know that sense has gone off and it hasn't ended up being a good decision in hindsight. So that's the first thing I would do. I, I think the the thing that I have embraced 
over the last probably six or seven years that has been very unpopular and very unhelpful is setting boundaries and sticking to them. And I think when when you talk about boundaries, I feel like you can't talk about a boundary without talking about the word disappointment because a boundary almost by definition is the decision to be comfortable with disappointing people. Yeah. If it's just I will do the work that pleases you and then I'll stop when you're happy, that's not a boundary. That's just a contract that says you can tell me what to do and I will just say yes to it. What I have to work out is if something is draining my enthusiasm, if it's making me not want to do the work anymore, I have to work out when and how I'm going to be comfortable with disappointing that person. And more often than not, the realization that I have or people around me when I've seen them go through this, this is a huge problem in our industry because if you don't draw a boundary, there is a bottomless list of t- list of tasks that people are going to continue to give you. And it's going to be because it helps their business or it helps a social cause or it helps their work or they think that you enjoy it. And if you don't have a boundary, you are going to burn yourself out. How do you handle those tough moments of upholding a boundary when the other party wants to push, like not even from it, it sounds so nasty and mean, but maybe they just had different expectations. Do you have any advice on how to uphold that boundary, stand up for your own needs? Is there a way to phrase it? Is there anything we can practice to get better at this? Because I know that so many of us, including myself, we're good at setting boundaries, but we're terrible at keeping them up and enforcing those boundaries. Oh, I mean, I feel like my advice is, is bad advice, but it's worked for me. Concede defeat. I've, I've already conceded defeat before I've gone into the conversation. I'm happy for you to be disappointed with me. I understand that you've had a bad experience. I'll, I'll take the loss, but I need that battery back. I need, I need that creative battery back because I can get two wins for the same energy it's going to take me to avoid having a loss with you. I'm content that I've got People who have been in our stuff who haven't enjoyed it and they haven't got what they thought they were going to get out of it. I agree with them. I don't disagree with why they're disappointed. They're right to be disappointed. Me throwing more of myself at that problem wasn't going to solve it. I picked the wrong fight. And so I, I'm very happy to concede defeat. And I've, I've, I have said, I've had, you know, projects that I've been on where I said, I'm not going to send you an invoice for any of the work that I've done. And I'm really sorry I've disappointed you. I'm going to go to the next thing. And they've gone, okay, because <laughs> they save a lot of money and so they're happy to do it. And I go, great. I had never even considered that an option. I want to please 110% at all times. I will throw myself against that wall over <laughs> and over if it's the last thing I do. <laughs> I It had never occurred to me that sometimes it's okay to just say, you know what, maybe this wasn't my best work or... You're expecting more than I can give right now. Maybe we should just sever those ties, go 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 our separate ways. I'll tell you what, there is there is a terrible part of me that enjoys those moments because people don't see it coming. People think that you're going to be a good little robot and that you're going to say yes to work and that you would never, you know, besmirch your name and your character by not doing what you said you would do. I don't hold my character in that high of a regard. 
I don't hold my reputation in that high of a regard, but this is, this is a very important distinction to me. There is the reputation that you have around your output and there is the reputation you have around your ethics. And I think they're very easy to get confused. And when people say things like a reputation takes a lifetime to build and a moment to destroy, they are talking about the ethics. They are not talking about, I'm sorry, I couldn't do the work that you wanted me to do in that particular time frame. That type of reputation, I don't think actually haunts people. If it's that I submitted the work late, that you were expecting a higher grade of analysis from what I was going to do, or you were hoping that I was going to bring you a magical solution that solved all of your problems. And instead I come to you with a solution that looks like and is hard work. I'm sorry, but I'm also not that sorry. If someone, if someone is disappointed with my ethics, I've got a huge problem. In, in this, in this industry, if you are seen as being unethical, dishonest, that side of my reputation, I'm pretty, I'm very conscious of trying to maintain that to the best of my ability. One of the lessons I've had to learn in the last few years, and it's, it's a tough, this is a tough lesson, is the idea of other people's opinion of me is none of my business. I found that very hard to unlearn. I found it yep. very hard to separate that. But ultimately, I can't make someone like me. I can't make someone appreciate the work that I've put in. I own what I do. They own their feelings towards it. I found that very hard to get my head around, but it has been very, very useful. That's super insightful. Thank you for sharing that. And I wanted to add that when we do work and there's a mismatch of expectations, I think as a client or partner, I would much more prefer Isaac coming up and saying, you know what, it's not working or I can't do it or something is up. Being transparent about that and say, why don't we just stop here and either go our separate ways or find a different solution rather than me trying to watch you burn yourself out on this and having to watch that process and it makes everybody miserable. I actually think that we would do ourselves a big favor by detaching ourselves from that and upholding those boundaries and instead investing our reputation from an ethics and value standpoint more so than being tied to the the outcomes we produce. I, I think ultimately you have a choice between disappointing other people or disappointing yourself. And selfishly, I've become more guarded around disappointing myself because I have to live with myself on the weekends. And that was the thing that when I'm, when I'm a sad sack with my partner, this is back 2013, 2014, I wasn't a fun person to be around. I was flat. I had like what I now understand is probably a milder form of depression for like yeah. a year. It was awful. There is no project I'm on that I can justify that where I can say, well, the trade-off is I'll be contributing to an important project and the cost of that is going to be I am going to be hard to deal with and I'm going to be abrupt and short with my kids. I'm not willing to make that personal trade. There is no there is no contract that you can offer me where I'm willing to run my battery down to a point where I'm then going to be disappointing myself and the people who are closest to me. It's very arrogant when you hear, when you hear yourself say it out loud. It doesn't sound like the right thing to say because all of the mythology and storytelling around you is celebrating people who are selfless and who set themselves on fire to keep other people warm. I just don't see that it's sustainable. I see that you can do that briefly, but I, I think 
What our industry needs is people who are going to be around for a decade or more. A lot of the projects that people are working on, they need 10, 20 years of your time. And if you burn yourself out within those first few years, we we miss out, the industry misses out on what you can do over a much longer time span. 100%. What a great note to almost end on. Almost. <laughs> can you please just write a ton more about this? Can you make a like a shit list of your 10 worst upholding your boundaries moments and and how they went, I think that'd be incredibly entertaining. The reason I say <laughs> that is your content is awesome. I love following on Instagram. <laughs> you recently started TikTok, which I, I, I'm not going down another rabbit hole, but I'm here for it. I think that's great. You write newsletters. You have so much content on your website, which everybody in the social impact space needs to go check out. What are the ways in which people can consume part of your thought of your experience how can they how can we all get a little bit more of isaac into our lives that is, that is far too kind that is far more praise than it actually deserves no <laughs> i have really enjoyed over the last six years the process of learning how to make stuff in a way that is um, hopefully helpful to someone somewhere um, but also sustainable for me to be able to to keep going um my website is just my name isaacjeffries.com my instagram is called evanda.strategy i had i had one that was my name and i found that i don't know if this is interesting or not but i found that what was happening is i had i had about 280 people following me pretty quickly after i joined instagram which is not that much on the scale of things but i don't feel like i really see 280 people all that much I had half those people be friends and family and I had half those people be people who had seen the Instagram link on my website. And I found that whenever I went to post anything work-related, I felt really guilty for putting stuff in the feed that, you know, my relatives and my friends don't want to read. And then I felt bad about posting photos of like gingerbread I'd baked or, you know, toddler photos or things like that. Because I was like, this is not what people signed up for who were looking for, you know, business model yeah. advice or financial model advice or, you know, impact model advice, which is what they found on my website. And so I decided uh, it needs to be two things. My friend Will Dable has this really good question that I've, I've stolen and used uh, wherever I can. And he says, it sounds like you're trying to have your cake and eat it too. Maybe what you actually want is two small cakes. And I went, whoa. That's a really good question. Uh, what I found with a lot of content creation and things that are online is the thing that paralyzed me and that paralyzes a lot of people is trying to be all things to all people and trying to be everyone's cup of tea. And what's been really helpful is to go, oh, actually, I probably need to have three or four things and I want them to each be cool. They don't need to be super profitable. They don't need to be for everybody, but I don't want... The, the standard advice for what makes a good blog for a business is often what makes it terrible for the reader. And the example of what makes good Instagram content for the algorithm is not the same as people you want to be talking to for a five-year period. I don't want to use trending audio. I don't. I don't care if that means I don't get more followers. I'm not after more followers. I want the people who I'm working with to have a visual record of all the like images and stuff that we use in conversation And the standard success metrics are irrelevant to me. And I found that dividing and conquering has been a really neat way of doing that. 
The conversation I find myself having all the time with people when they see the content that I produce is it's not that they think that the content is that impressive. It's just that they get a bit jealous that I'm publishing it and they go, I wish I was publishing it and I just can't bring myself to do it. I always tell them the same thing. Make progress in secret. Don't tell anyone it exists until you've done it for a while. My job wanted me to write articles for their website. I wrote three. They hated them and barely used them. And I went, "Mm, I'm not actually a good writer. But you know what? If I wrote a 100 articles, by the time I got to the 101st one, it probably wouldn't be an embarrassment. And so I decided I was going to write a 100 articles in secret. And I decided I would take a whole year to do it. And that year was 2016. And I didn't tell a soul that it existed. Until April, because the first person I told about it was you. So you were actually the first stranger who arrived at my website. Google, Google, like traffic had sort of picked up a little bit because I hit a bunch of keywords for business model topics and things like that. But that was my secret was I was very happy to talk about it with someone who understood the field, Mm -hmm. who had no idea who I was and who was like delightfully distant. That was a really non-threatening way for me to start saying here I made this I know it's not perfect but something here might be really really helpful one of the things that people do wrong with blogs and articles is they write one of them and they put it on LinkedIn and what happens is LinkedIn shows it to everyone you've ever met and they get lots of applause and celebration and they go wow that was intense I'm going to write a second article and they write a second one and it gets a similar amount of applause And they write a third one and it gets slightly less applause, but it gets some lovely comments from people who say, keep up the good work. I really enjoy your writing. And then what happens is they have a busy week. And at the end of that busy week, they can't think of a fourth article that's as good as the first three. And so they give it another week and then another week and they never go back to it again because it's so intimidating to try and write a fourth article that's as good as those first three. And so my advice to them is always the same. Write 30 articles in secret on a Word document and edit them as a collection. And after 30 of them, you'll know what your tone of voice is. You'll know what the themes are that you keep coming back to. You'll know if you like writing articles that are 150 words, like what Seth Godin does, or if you like articles that are 4,000 words, like what Neil Patel does, or if they're somewhere in between. And you'll know if you like using metaphors, visuals, videos, embedded links, like you'll get a sense after 30 of what it is and then release them one at a time. But that way it's like you're, you've got like a gallery or a collection rather than trying to make it up as you go along. That's how you get longevity in your creativity. And if you do that, if you then release them one a week for the 30 of them, you've got six months to then work out what the next collection is going to be. But that way you're not constantly trying to (laughs) overcome that resistance to create. You've already done the creation. Now you can do the learning and working out what's next. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is why I wanted Isaac Jeffries on this podcast. (laughs) Thank you so much. This is great. Uh, While we're at it, I want to let everybody know that they can connect with you at IsaacJeffries.com. They can find you on social media as Evander Strategy. And I'm going to put all those links in the show notes. Are you ready for the rapid fire round where I give you a beginning of the sentence and you finish it for me? Let's do it. Great. First off, taking care of yourself means? Boundaries. Taking care of yourself means boundaries. You can't be all things to all people. And so by working out what you want to defend, it gives you a really good chance of achieving it. 
and not just drawing boundaries, but then also sticking to them and upholding them. I've learned so much about this in this conversation. Thank you. Secondly, the one practice, habit, or routine that every change maker should know about. Writing out what you believe to be true. And I don't really care what format it's in. I'm not plugging or selling. You should do it on a website or on socials or on a book or a podcast or, or, or anything like that. But actually the process of working out what do I believe to be true, what advice do I think is good advice and in what context, the little bit of fear you have when you go to press publish is actually a very helpful amount in terms of your editing. Uh, there's an author, I can't remember who it was, I think it was Neil Strauss, he says you should always do three edits for your work. One edit is for your fans, what else do I want to give them? One edit is for your haters, which is, is there anything in here that is going to be needlessly provocative or that is going to send people down the wrong path or attract headlines for the wrong reasons that I don't actually mean? And the third edit is for yourself. Is this reflecting what I want it to reflect? Does it look like the message that I want to be putting out? That practice, it almost can't help but make you better at what you do. It is a bit confronting, but if you do it in like bite-sized pieces consistently, you know, it'll help you work out what your theories are. It'll help you develop almost a syllabus and it's going to make it easier for you to show people what you believe rather than trying to describe it each time. One resource that influenced you so much that you would recommend it to other change makers. The book that made me start all of that was called Show Your Work by Austin Kleon. It eliminated all of the excuses that I'd formed. I can't recommend that high enough because after you told me about it, I bought it and then steal like an artist. And then, and there's a third one that I think I have. Keep going. Yes. It's just about putting your work out there, even if it's imperfect, but that whole idea of progress over perfection and just repetition is what makes you good. Not the God given talent or a good night's sleep. I, I love that. Great resource. Thank you so much for making the time. It's close to midnight in Australia right now. <laughs> and I'm starting my work day. So lovely to catch up. Thank you for making the time. And I hope we get to do this again sometime soon. Thank you for having me. And thank you to anyone who's listening. I really love the audience that you've put together. I love your content. I love your interviews. And it's slightly intimidating to think that some of those people might end up hearing some of this, but I really like you naturally attract a group of people who want to be helpful and conduct themselves in a really professional manner. I think it's a very special group of people. Ah, thank you. I think you are a perfect example of that. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> All right. Thank you, Isaac. I hope to talk to you soon. And um, yeah, until next time, good night. Thank you. Cheers. Be sure to find out more about Isaac's work at isaacjeffries.com and on social media as Evander Strategy. I pay my respect to the traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live, the Tuscarora, Shakori, Saponi, Okanichi, Lumbee and Ino people. I recognize their continuing connection to land, water and community. I pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. This episode was produced by Yellow House Media.